Great heart motivation. Recall how fortunate we are to have encountered the Bodhisattva path. And how even when we experience difficulties, we're fortunate to experience those difficulties while practicing the Bodhisattva path. Because samsara is a whole bunch of difficulties anyway that are going to come. So when they come to make them useful and think that they are burning up our karma, increasing our compassion for other living beings, and uh, stabilizing and enhancing the force of our compassion and bodhicitta. And in that way, difficulties uh, really become part of the path to awakening. So in that way, we're quite fortunate to have them. And even more fortunate to come in contact with the teachings and the texts that teach the path to full awakening. So let's generate that bodhicitta motivation. So I've been talking a lot this week. My voice is not very good. So there were a few questions from last week. I didn't give the teaching last week. Uh, Oh, okay, because in her email she said they were from last week. Yeah, so I don't know what went over. In any case, whenever they're from, I can answer them. Okay, so do afflictive obscurations include karma but not karmic seeds? Afflictive obscurations are only afflictions and the seeds of afflictions. Karma and karmic seeds are not afflictive obscurations. Okay, they're included in true causes of dukkha. But true causes of dukkha and afflictive obscurations are not the same. Okay? So the affixative obscurations, the afflictions, and then the seeds that carry the uh, potential to have that affliction arise again in the future. Those are the afflictive obscurations. Okay? Okay. So since our hearts eliminate craving, karmic seeds cannot ripen to cause rebirth in samsara. Can we deduce then that non-virtuous and even virtuous karma is eliminated at this stage? No. (laughs) While the practitioner continues his meditation to train his mind on emptiness and bodhicitta as a direct perceiver into the emptiness of phenomena. Okay, so arhats, yeah, 
Um, somebody who becomes an arhat is practicing the shravaka or solitary realizer path. So they stop at arhatship, okay? They have eliminated all the afflictive obscurations, yeah, the afflictions and their seeds. They still have the seeds of karma in their mind stream. Um, in particular, the, they may have seeds that uh, could have the potential to cause of rebirth, but those seeds cannot ripen because the arhat has eliminated craving. And so without craving and clinging, the, the, six, the eighth and ninth of the twelve links, without those, then uh, the karma that, that causes rebirth cannot ripen. Okay? In terms of the bodhisattva, okay, they will eliminate the afflictive obscurations um, at the beginning of, of the eighth ground. So at that time, their realization is similar to that of an arhat in that they've eliminated the afflictive obscurations. But the bodhisattva has many more qualities than an arhat has at, when they reach the eighth ground. Okay, so the bodhisattva at the eighth ground, yes, they will continue uh, practicing until they eliminate the cognitive obscurations at which time they become Buddhas. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, grasping at persons is removed, but grasping at phenomena is not completely eradicated until Buddhahood, question mark. At this stage, are all seeds of karma eradicated? Okay, according to the, the, the view of some of the lower schools, is that grasping at persons is removed at our hardship. Um, but they don't, some of them don't assert even a grasping at phenomena. Some of them assert a grasping at phenomena, but say that isn't eliminated until uh, full awakening. The prasangikas, however, say that just to attain our hardship, somebody has to eliminate the grasping at persons and at phenomena. Okay, this is going to come up. Um, it either already came up or it w- is going to come up in in um, illuminating the thought. Yeah, the, starting tomorrow, the text we're studying. Okay, so um, yeah, so from the Prasangika view, an arhat has eliminated both grasping persons and phenomena, yeah, and the afflictive obscurations, but they haven't eliminated the cognitive obscurations, yeah. A bodhisattva at the eighth ground has eliminated the grasping at persons and grasping at phenomena and the afflictive obscurations, but not the cognitive obscurations, but they will eliminate those um, on the, the last uh, uninterrupted path, the last path of a sentient being, and at the time they attain Buddhahood, uh, all those obstacles are gone. Okay. At the eighth ground, the eighth bumi, the practitioner has real, reached the stage 
of the path of meditation. Actually, they've reached, the bodhisattvas have reached the path of meditation at the second ground. They don't have to wait until the the uh, eighth ground. Okay, uh, they reach the end. And so innate afflictive obscurations are, are removed. Yes, that's correct for, for the bodhisattva path. Thus, karma should be removed at this stage. Not necessarily, okay? Because uh, if you have karmic seed, uh, at this time you're not going to be creating any new karma because ignorance has been removed and without ignorance you can't create uh you know the the kind of karma that causes rebirth yeah but bodhisattvas create uh, unpolluted karma at this stage yeah so um at this stage for the bodhisattvas there there could be karmic seeds in their mind stream um you know, but again, they can't ripen because the ignorance and the craving have been eliminated. But also, the, their, whatever karmic seeds they have are, are probably not so powerful because they've been doing so much purification. And when you uh, generate bodhicitta, just, you know, as we studied in the first chapter, doing any actions with bodhicitta, uh, the first chapter of Shantideva, doing any actions with um with bodhicitta is a very uh, forceful purification of karma so they will have purified more than an, than an arhat yeah okay yeah but they still can have karmic seeds that that influence different things in their life and so on um okay at the stage of Buddhahood, uh, you know, all the karmic seeds have, uh, um, all the polluted karmic seeds, those created by ignorance, um, are no longer there. Maybe they've been, the virtuous ones have been changed into unpolluted karmic seeds, something like that. And that may start happening, actually, the bodhisattva path of, of um path of seeing, to start doing that. Okay. Uh, Do we refer to eighth ground bodhisattvas and above as liberated, or is this term specific to the arhats? Um, We can call, we can say they're liberated from samsara. Um, Yeah, we don't call them arhats because they're, you know, their their final aim is not arhatship, but they are like arhats in that way. Although, as Venerable Sankhya pointed out in her BBC, uh, the Buddha is often called an arhat. Okay? So uh, the word arhat can be used in a variety of different ways. You know, in the Pali uh, tradition, an arhat refers to arhats and buddhas okay um and that chant that that she was quoting is done in both the pali tradition and sanskrit tradition so um i guess it's fine to call the buddha an arhat too <laughs> yeah a mahayana arhat 
Okay, anything else about this? These were questions coming from Singapore. So somebody's been paying attention. Good. <laughs> okay. So we've been, uh, we started before this long interruption um, on the chapter that is called, there's the first, oh, Karma, the Universe, and Evolution. And we were like a page and a half into that chapter. <laughs> so I'm just going to start. Um, I'm going to start, there was an introductory paragraph. I'm going to start at the beginning of that chapter again because it's been a while since uh, we had it. Okay. So this chapter talking about karma, the universe, and and evolution, um, we'll be talking about the interplay between our mind, our subtle um, winds, the subtle elements of the body, the external physical universe, and how those the interplay between them. And uh, there are no hard and fast answers here. His Holiness is sharing with you some of his thoughts. Okay, he was very clear when uh, when we discussed this that this is uh, still a topic for investigation. Okay, so the section starts the origin of the universe. Similar to today, a vibrant topic of discussion among both religious and secular people in the Buddhist time centered on the origin and destruction of the universe. Yeah, people have been talking about that for a long time. It's a big deal now, isn't it? They fight about it in school boards. Yeah, how are we, what are we going to teach the children about the origin of the universe? So as recorded in the sutras, um, the, the people asked, was the universe eternal or not eternal, transient or permanent, finite or infinite? Did the universe have a beginning or was it beginningless? And the Buddha refused to answer these questions because the people who asked them were thinking in terms of an inherently existent universe. So we find there's... Uh, some people say 14 questions the Buddha didn't answer. Some people say 12. However many the questions he didn't answer, the reason for not answering them was the same, that the people are asking with the assumption that things exist inherently. And so no matter how the Buddha answers it, uh, they're going to misunderstand because they have that that basic misunderstanding. Okay, so no matter how the Buddha could have responded, they would have thought that either the universe existed inherently or it did not exist at all. So those are the two extremes that we always bump up. Because holding either of these views would have harmed them, the Buddha chose not to respond. At other times, the Buddha refused to comment on the origin of the universe because it was not relevant to the alleviation of dukkha and the attainment of liberation. Yeah, so people, I mean, we see it today too. People ask all sorts of questions, 
and they think you know it's it's uh, it pertains to the path to liberation, but uh, from a Buddhist perspective, these things are actually taking you you know on a, a, a pizza exploration of recipes for different pizza, you know. In other words, they're they're irrelevant to the topic at hand. (laughs) Okay, Abhidharma texts and the Kalataka Tantra, however, commented on the evolution of the universe in conventional terms. Okay, so nowadays scientists research these same topics leading to fascinating dialogues between Buddhists and scientists, some of which I have attended. Okay, so in Buddhism, the Abhidharma texts talk about the evolution of the universe. The Kala Chakra Tantra does. They have different presentations, but both presentations talk about the role of karma in the formation of the universe. Okay, and that is... Uh, when we when we hear sometimes that the mind uh, caused you know the the universe or karma caused it, we get the idea that oh the mind caused it. So somebody thought uh, palm trees and then <laughs> palm trees existed, okay? Or somebody mixed up a brew somehow magically in their mind and then icebergs you know arose. Uh, no, it's not like that. And our karma didn't, you know, manipulate the physical elements to produce toaster ovens or, or you know, the Arctic Ocean or something like that. Okay, so when it says uh, things originate in the mind or karma's involved, it means they have an influence. It doesn't mean they are the, you know, uh, some kind of ultimate uh, inherently existent creator, yeah, um, or something, you know, something like that that we often misunderstand. And it doesn't mean that they're the substantial cause of the universe either. Okay. And then, of course, the scientists have their views, and they don't have one one view either. There's many views about the about the Big Bang, you know. So, and then other religions postulate, you know, a creator God. They have many different views of how creator God did it. So, um, yeah. (laughs) You could probably write a book, you know, with all these different views in it. And then get yourself either good, good and confused or know which ones to refute and which ones to accept and become very clear on it. So there are several approaches that could be taken regarding the origin of the universe. First, we must investigate if it was created by a cause or if it was created causelessly. Okay. Now, you know, in Pramnavartika, not this year, but last year, you know, and the year before, there was a lot of refutations about a creator, different theories of causation, and so on. Okay, so here it is. It's coming up again. Yeah. If you haven't noticed so far, yeah, the Buddhist texts, uh, many Buddhist texts take time to refute the idea of uh, an external creator. Okay, 
and uh, refute, you know, asking are things created with a cause or without a cause, refuting that things appear without a cause, refuting that an independent cause cause them, refuting that anything can cause anything, a discordant cause can cause something, refuting that a permanent cause can cause something. So these refutations um, you find in many, many texts, which indicates their importance. Okay, So even though many of these ideas are uh, non-Buddhist ideas, because all the Buddhist tenant systems uh, were very clear that things arise dependent on causes, and on concordant causes, in other words, causes that have the ability to to uh, bring about that result. Um, you know, it, it, the Buddhists find it very valuable to refute these non-Buddhist ideas for a couple of reasons. One is because as an individual, uh, we could very easily have those views. Yeah, we may have been taught them as a child. We may have learned them in school. We may just uh, feel, we were talking the other day, how emotionally comfortable it is to think that there's a creator God in charge of the universe. So these kind of views can be inside us, uh, originating from a bunch of different causes. Okay? Um, and in addition, the, the Buddhists refute them because... Uh, they were in, dia- in dialogue with all these non-Buddhist schools, and they were, you know, debating day and night and in between, it seems like, about these issues. And the way the debates were carried out is that if, uh, you know, the leaders of two different uh, um, traditions were debating, the one who lost that person and all their followers would convert to becoming followers of the winner of the debate. So there was a lot at stake if you blew it, okay? Uh, You know, your whole, uh, uh, you know, you and all your followers are going to be humiliated and, uh, you know, nobody wants that. So... uh, yeah, there was a lot of um, stuff going on there, you know. And they, they tried to pay, play tricks on each other, yeah. And uh, you know, Aryadeva was debating uh, one non-Buddhist who, what did he do? He brought a a slate, a parrot, a few different things to the debate um, because he was getting. Uh, the answers from his god, I don't think it was Ishvar, but some other god, was giving him the answers, you know, uh, in this way. I don't know, the par- parrot was, what? oh, the parrot was naughty, and he did something that made all the other people run away. Do anybody? It's in volume eight, but I haven't read it in a while because I'm stuck on illusion-like appearances <laughs> right now. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, so they played tricks on each other and and so on uh, to try and win the debates. Okay, so among those who accept... uh, Okay, wait a minute. 
I skipped something. Most people find causeless or random production unacceptable because in our everyday lives, we witness effects arising from causes. Don't we? Yeah? So saying that things come without a cause is, it doesn't make much sense. Okay? We may not know what the cause is of something, but that doesn't mean there wasn't a cause. Furthermore, it would be difficult for anything to function and change if it lacked causes and conditions, okay? Because causes and conditions, you know, a cause is the principal thing that makes something arise, and the conditions are what uh, enable that cause to bring about its result, okay? So you need both causes and conditions. If you just had a cause and no conditions, then either the cause could not produce a result or it would just produce a result ad infinitum, never stopping, yeah? Because the conditions, if the conditions are present, the cause can produce a result. If the conditions aren't present, there's no result. So if you don't, if you say that things are produced but there's no conditions, then logically it becomes very strange. Then what made the cause change to become a result? And if it did change to become a result, then it just keeps producing more and more and more and more results. Yeah? Because there's no cause, there's no conditions to change that would stop the production of the results from that cause. Yeah? So there's so much discussion about this. Hmm? So among those, um, okay, I didn't finish this paragraph. Okay, so furthermore, it would be difficult for anything to function and change if it lacked causes and conditions. Permanent phenomena cannot interact with other things to produce something new. So if there's no cause or no condition, then it's going to be permanent. Permanent here means it doesn't... Sometimes in in English, permanent means um, eternal. That's not the meaning in Buddhism. In in Buddhism, permanent means it doesn't change moment to moment. So if you have something that doesn't change moment to moment, then... It can't produce anything, can it? Because as soon production or a rising of a result means that something has to change first. Yeah, does that make sense to all of you? Yeah? So among those who accept that the universe arose due to causes, there are different assertions. Theistic religions such as Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and some branches of Hinduism speak of an external creator. Yeah, that's one view. Then there's different assertions about the creator. Most religions say the creator is permanent. Yeah, that the creator, him, her, or itself was not created. Nobody created the creator because the creator was the thing that 
created everything else, so it itself was uncreated. Okay. If you have something that was not created by causes and conditions, can that thing change and produce an effect? No. Okay. If it's just there because it magically appeared and it's permanent, yeah, because it wasn't created due to causes and conditions, yeah, then it's never going to be influenced by any other conditions or any other causes, and it itself can't change. Yeah? Okay, so this is important, these things to really sit and think about. Yeah, I mean, if if this appeared out of nowhere, yeah, it wasn't created, it just... First of all, how could it appear without being created? But even, you know, you get beyond that and you say, okay, it appeared, but it was permanent. Yeah. Then something that's permanent, uh, nothing can influence it. Yeah. You could put this in, a, in fire and the fire wouldn't burn it because to burn, this thing would have to change. But something that's permanent cannot change. Okay. Okay. Most scientists attribute the origin of the universe to the Big Bang, and some assert that uh, one Big Bang began all existence, others saying there may have been several Big Bangs as different universes began. Okay. But then, what caused the Big Bang? And what existed before the Big Bang? Okay, because if the Big Bang didn't have causes and conditions, what made it bang? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Non-theistic Samkhya, a Hindu philosophical school, and some other traditions speak of a primal substance. Remember this one, Prakriti, the primal substance out of which everything was created. Really, it sounds so good, doesn't it? Everything created by one primal substance, and it comes out, and then it absorbs back into union oneness with the primal substance, and then it radiates out as something else. It's We like the idea of oneness and harmony very much. So this, like, really appeals to it. Everything goes out, then it comes in, it's all one again. Or, you know, some New Age things, there's one universal mind. Okay, one universal mind. And we're all chips off that universal mind. Okay. It sounds so nice, doesn't it? Then you don't have to worry about your own mind. Because when you die, it's just going to merge back in with the one universal one, and your karma is, I don't know, obliterated or something. Or the one universal mind has a storage place for all that rubbish. I don't know. Yeah, But it, there's something, we, we really like this idea 
of of oneness. And, yeah, because we don't get along. So somehow at the beginning or at the end, everything's got to be harmonious. Okay. But when you really investigate how that could possibly be, you just find a bunch of logical contradictions. You know, there's no way to really explain it. When when you were a kid, did you ever ask why God created the world? And what answer did you get? Because. Hmm? Because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just because what? Yeah, God was lonely. Yeah, I heard that one too. What? So he created us because he loved us. So he loved us before he created us. You love something that's not created? (laughs) Or you create it and you do such a lousy job that then you love it? I mean, really, God did a very, I mean, if God created it, he did not do a good job. You know? Yeah. And if he's lonely, how can somebody who's perfect be lonely? Yeah. Okay. Buddhists speak of the interplay between the laws of nature and the law of karma and its effects. Okay, so an interplay. Difficulties arise when we posit one original cause or event as the source of the universe with its mass, space, and time. If there were a single initial cause for all existence, be it a cosmic substance, dense matter, or preceding intelligence, what triggered that one cause to give rise to the universe with all of its complexity and diversity. Yeah, you have one cause that wound up which is producing so much complexity and diversity. What prompted it to change from the state it was in before to creating this whole big universe? Yeah, something must have prompted it. And if something prompted it, then it means it's not permanent. Mm-hmm. It means it's dependent that other factors influence it. Change, such as the production of the universe, involves a complex interplay of many factors that influence one another since even the existence of something like a small flower, something small like a flower, involves multiple causes and conditions. Needless to say, this is the case with more complex entities, such as the whole big universe. Okay. You might want to read uh, Geshe Topke's book, 
It's called the Rice uh, Seedling Sutra. Okay, so it has a translation of the Rice Seedling Sutra. And then it has a um, an explanation of dependent arising and refutes all the reasons why things cannot, you know, functioning things cannot be. Um, it, it refutes the assertions of some people that functioning things are permanent. Okay, so it goes into all these arguments. It's quite, it's quite good, yeah. And he touches on the uh, the twelve links as well and selflessness. Okay, because things depend on causes and conditions, they change. Yeah, so just sit with that one. Okay, when there's causes and conditions, things are going to change. You don't need to make them change. Just the fact that they arose due to causes and conditions means they're going to change. Why? Because the causal energy itself is impermanent and changes moment to moment. So if that causal energy changes moment to moment, the result it's producing is changing moment to moment. Okay. And so change is just going to keep continuing. Yeah. Once something is impermanent by nature, it cannot become permanent. Yeah. So once something is, you know, has the nature of being produced and it produces other things, there's nothing that can change it, change that nature and make it, uh, independent of causes and conditions. Similarly, anything that is permanent can never become impermanent because anything that's permanent is not influenced by causes and conditions. So there's nothing that could make it change to become impermanent. Okay. So this, uh, we come across all of these things in the uh, when we're examining how the self exists and how phenomena exists you know and sometimes we have the feeling that we exist and part of us is impermanent and part of us is permanent and unchanging yeah and we kind of feel that way you know how we have feelings and we believe in our feelings yeah these kind of feelings and intuitions can be very unreliable, okay? Because you, we can't be impermanent and permanent at the same time, yeah? It's like you can't exist and not exist at the same time, you know, two totally contradictory things, you know? Okay. Because they, things depend on causes and conditions, they change. Whatever arises necessarily depends on the causes and conditions that produce it. This is the law of causality, a natural law of the universe that nobody created. It's just the way things are. So the, a natural law of the universe that describes how things arise and produce results. 
Within this law of causality, Buddha Gosha, uh, Buddha Gosha's commentary on the Dignaga Nikaya, um, speaks of five specific types of causality. So this is from the Pali tradition, which I find very interesting. I haven't uh, heard this from the Mahayana tradition. Okay. So the, these different uh, systems of causality, um, Buddha Gosa described when he was commenting on the meaning of dharmata, the nature of things. So we have that dharmata also. Okay, so five specific types of causality. First one, inorganic causality. So this is the causality occurring with inorganic matter as described by physics, astronomy, and inorganic chemistry. It includes the causal functioning of subatomic particles, as well as the causality involved with grosser matter, such as the weather and aerodynamics, the planets uh, in the cosmos, um, all kinds of astronomical things and, uh, you know, all these kinds of stuff. Okay, I don't even know the names of all of them, but that's all in this category. Then second is biological causality. So that involves uh, organic forms. For example, the causality involved with genes, chromosomes, and biological processes in the plant and animal worlds. So how we digest food, how things are recycled in nature, all these kinds of things are biological causality. The third one is psychological causality, and it deals with the complex interactions among various types of consciousnesses and mental factors. For example, how sensory cognizers occur, how mental consciousnesses arise in reaction to them, and how memory comes about. Okay, so the the first one, how sensory cognizers occur. Scientists have, you know, their their explanations. We learned a lot of these in grammar school to start out with, and and then um, maybe learn more about how they work as we got older, and maybe we still have the grammar school <laughs> understanding because we forgot what we learned, you know, early. But the whole, you know, how how you see something and the light waves come and hit the the rods and cones and send electrical impulses to one area of the brain that has an upside-down image, but somehow you perceive it as right-side-up. <laughs> you can tell my level. I used to know this. When I, when I taught elementary school, I used to be able to describe it better, better but the, that was a long time ago. And I did study it in, in high school and college, but that's, you know. Okay, so um, that's all included psychological causality. You know, how our sensory cognizers work, how, what is thought? Yeah, how do you? How is it that you have a sensory con- uh, cognizer 
that you then can think about. And what is a thought? And how does thought work? Okay, and what is memory? And, you know, what's the difference between a conceptual and non-conceptual mind? Any of our scientists, do you know, do do scientists talk about conceptual and non-conceptual minds? Do they use those words? Who was a psych major? No psych majors? Okay. Anyway, it would be included in in that category. Then a fourth is karmic causality. Okay, it's another type of causality. So this concerns volitional actions done by sentient beings and their karmic effects. Our actions have an ethical dimension that naturally influences the rebirth we take as well as our experiences, habitual actions, and uh, the environment we're born into and in which we live. Okay, so that's all karmic causality. Then the fifth one is called natural phenomenal causality. Okay, so this concerns certain natural phenomena such as the wondrous events that occur when a bodhisattva descends into his mother's womb in his last rebirth. Yeah, remember the story, you know, his mother Maya dreamt of an elephant entering her womb. So this, this, you know, Texas, you know, couldn't touch that one. Um <laughs> Texas is very interested in all these topics. Um, but, uh, okay, so it, it would concern that kind of wondrous event. Um, yeah, so how the Bodhisattva descends into the mother's womb in his last rebirth, attains awakening, turns the wheel of Dharma, and passes away, attaining Parinirvana. So these are wondrous events that have causes, now, those kind of causes are called the natural phenomenal causes. Okay, so these events include such uh, things as the earth quaking and a great light appearing in the world system. You know how it's said that whenever somebody generates bodhicitta, the earth quakes? Yeah, so... Um, yeah, some years ago there was an earthquake uh, in the Bay Area and around San Jose and south of that. And I wrote to our friends in, in Vajrapani and I said, when you, atten- when you generate bodhicitta, you know, could you just cool it a little bit and not <laughs> harm so many people with your earthquakes? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so things like that. So such things occur... Uh, dharmata, or naturally. Yeah, they're part of that whole process. Okay, so the footnote says this and other examples from the, the long discourses are commonly given in the ancient commentaries. More research needs to be done on the meaning of dharma causality. Bhikkhu Bodhi speculates that it may include the causality of progressing on the path, 
with one realization being the cause of the next. That would make sense. Okay. So the causality of the 12 links of dependent origination is a natural phenomenal causality epitomized by the Buddhist words. When that exists, this comes to be. From the arising of that, this arises. When that does not exist, this does not come to be. When that ceases, this ceases. So these are famous verses. They're in the uh, Pali Sutras, and they're also in the Rice Seedling Sutra. You know? So it's very important. Yeah, When that exists... Yeah, this, some particular thing exists. Something else is going to come into existence. Yeah. Okay. From the, from the arising of one thing, something else is going to arise. From the arising of that, this arises. When that does not exist, this does not come to be. So when the cause or the conditions are gone, are absent, the um, result doesn't come. And when that ceases, this ceases. So when the causal energy ceases, the result, and the result also ceases. So it's interesting in your meditation to make many examples of, of this kind of thing and really get a feeling of how uh, causality just permeates our lives and how causality means impermanence and how impermanence permeates our lives and how impermanence relates to uh, emptiness. Because if things existed inherently, they would be permanent. Then nothing could change. And which means if things inherently exist, we can never become Buddhas. So it's because things are impermanent that we can even progress on the path. People tend to think, uh, often think of impermanence as depressing. Yeah, something goes out of existence. You lose what you have. But actually, impermanence, causality, means that we can change and become Buddhas. So this causality is the natural order of things in the universe. Although the other four types of causality are actually types of natural phenomenal causality, only those causal relations that do not fall within those first four are included in the natural phenomenal causality. And the footnote here... Oh, that that was explained by Lati uh, Lati Sayada. Okay. These five types of causality are explained to show that there is no external creator of the universe or of sentient beings. Because if there's causality, there's no need for a permanent creator or an independent creator. Rather, all things arise and cease continuously 
independence on their causes and conditions. While each of the five has its own sphere of operation, they are interconnected and influence one another. Okay. And that, that way of how they're interconnected and influence each other, that is a very hidden phenomena. Yeah. Okay, so now the next section is called Mind and the External World. So Abhidharma texts speak of countless world systems, but I'm unsure if a world system is equivalent to a solar system, a galaxy, or the universe. (laughs) A universe. Yeah. Do scientists say there's one universe, or can there be more than one universe? Anybody know? Can there be more than one universe? Yeah. Yes, there is a multiverse theory. Okay. Some multiverse theories and some say no, only one universe? Okay. Like everything else. (laughs) In any case, Mahayana Sutras and the Kala Chakra Tantra speak of vast world systems throughout infinite space. At any particular time, some world systems are arising, some abiding, some disintegrating, and others remaining dormant. In this view, there is no absolute beginning. There is simply the beginning, a beginningless interplay of various factors that make world systems arise, abide, disintegrate, and remain dormant. And you can see why there would be no beginning. Because if you have a beginning, what caused the beginning? And then whatever you assert as causing the beginning, what caused that? And if you say, well, it came out of nowhere... That answer is not very satisfactory. Yeah. And if you say it always was, then it would be unchangingly permanent, you know, if nothing created it. Or it would be permanent and impermanent. It would be permanent before it decided to create anything else. Do you see the kind of logical difficulties that come with this. Okay. So, His Holiness said, there is simply the beginningless interplay of various factors that make world systems arise, abide, disintegrate, and remain dormant. So, you know, the reason I'm stopping and talking so much about this is because on one level we say, yes, causality, yeah? But on another level, our mind is resistant to causality. Yeah, because causality means change. It also means we're going to die. Nobody likes thinking about death. Okay. And, and we really like the idea of definite beginnings and definite ends. You know? Don't we? I mean, in addition to liking theories that, you know, it's harmonious 
and then maybe it gets all screwed up and then it comes back and it's harmonious again. That, that we like, okay. But infinitely messed up and chaotic? <laughs> no, we don't like that, yeah. So the whole idea of beginninglessness is, uh, you know, it's very challenging for people. Uh, do you remember in math class learning about the number line? Yeah. And okay, one, two, three, four. Yeah. And it goes on and there's no end. You know, and you think, but there has to be. What's the biggest number? And then your teacher says, well, you just add one to that number. And then you add one to that. You cannot find the biggest number. And going the other way from zero, what's the biggest negative number? Again, that's beginningless. Yeah. So the whole idea of infinity, beginningless, endless, it makes us extremely uncomfortable because we like nice, neat boxes that have definite lines so that we can categorize everything into some definite thing and make sense of it. Yeah? Or, you know, we go into mystery and miracles where anything goes. Yeah. But then, and sometimes we'll go back and forth between those two. Yeah. Our mind is quite interesting, you know, what kind of ingrained preconceptions we have uh, and, you know, and the, the role of what we believe in, the, no, the role of what makes us comfortable emotionally in what we decide to believe. Because we think that we are reasonable and rational and that's what decides our beliefs. But my theory is first we decide what we believe and then we find a reason to agree with that and establish that. Okay? And, and uh, scripture is a great way because especially if the scripture came from a mysterious, uh, omniscient source that is you cannot comprehend, then, you know, whatever that mysterious source said, uh, you just must accept because it, it by nature operates in a different way than we can, and, and there's no way to understand that. Okay? So it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Either I want to know every single cause, or I just, it, I give it all to God and I don't worry about any of that. It's all a mystery. Yeah? It's quite interesting. We human beings are kind of puzzling, aren't we? Yeah. Oh, we're so full of contradictions. Yeah. We think that we make sense, but when we really look at what we think, 
we're so full of contradictions. <laughs> Buddhist thinkers speak of conditioned phenomena, things that are impermanent, composed of parts, and conditioned by other factors. As, and the, uh, we see these conditioned phenomena as being of three types, form, mind, and abstract composites, such as time. What is the relationship between form, the material building blocks, and resultant compounded things in the external universe? What's the relationship between that and mind with its thoughts, feelings, and intentions? When we speak of the development of a world system and the evolution of life in particular, what is the relationship between mind and form? So here, form relating to material, meaning material stuff. So I will share my thoughts about this, His Holiness says. These are by no means definitive conclusions but hopefully they will spark some curiosity among both uh, those with scientific inclinations and those with spiritual dispositions. The general Buddhist view is expressed by the first Dalai Lama in his commentary on the treasury of knowledge. So here's the quote. If one asks, this manifold world which has been explained the environment and the sentient beings living in it, where does it come from? It does not arise without cause or from a discordant cause because it arises occasionally. And it does not arise from the creator God, such as Ishvara, and so forth, because it arises gradually. As it says, if one asks, from what does it arise, the manifold world of the environment and the sentient beings living in it arise from karma. What does that mean? Okay, so let's go into some explanation of that verse. So the manifold world is comprised of the environment and the sentient beings living in it. Sometimes you'll hear the uh, phrase, the support and supported. Okay, so one way of describing the meaning of that is the environment is the support and the sentient beings living in it are the supported. They'll talk about the mandala in that way. The the um, you know the mandala house that the mandala universe that is the support and the deities in the mandala are the supported. So the world did not arise without a cause, because everything that functions must arise from causes. Okay, so we talked about that. It did not arise from a discordant cause because a specific effect can arise only from the causes and conditions that have the ability to produce it. 
So it has to, the, there has to be uh, um, concordity. Concord, no. Uh, what? Accordance. Concordance, thank you. Um, <laughs> between the cause and the result. Okay. It's nice to me. I can make a force, can't I? Concordity. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, you know, if you plant tomatoes, don't expect to get bell peppers. Yeah. If you plant bell peppers, don't expect to get a car. You know, the, the cause, there has to be concordant. Concordance, concordance between the cause and the effect. Okay. In other words, everything, nothing, everything can't produce everything, or anything can't produce anything. However, you want to say it. Yeah, there has to be some concordance there. It's not just yeah, and this. this this really applies to our life, you know. When we think about what kind of uh, future we want to have, or what we want to have, or do, or be in, in the future, yeah. Sometimes we completely uh, we can't determine what the causes for that are, and we fall into just complete kind of. Uh, berserkiness, okay? So, for example, why does His Holiness say that praying uh, to the Buddha to stop climate change is not what's going to work? That we need action. Why does He say that? Okay, well, prayer might help a little bit in terms of moving people's minds in a different, in a certain direction. But prayer alone is not going to stop global warming. Yeah. As Olya says, human beings created the mess. We have to clean it up. Okay, so there has to be some concordance there. It was interesting, the, this book, what was the name, of the um, anthropologist who went to, was it Alabama or Georgia or Mississippi, somewhere in the south, um, because she really wanted to understand how the people there thought. Do people remember... Strangers in their own land. Thank you. Okay. It's so nice to have people who can remember things for me. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, a stranger in their own land. And it was very interesting because the people there were definitely uh, adversely affected by uh, the pollution from the... Um, you know that the oil, what do you, the petro petro pet that petrochemical plants, okay, and refineries, yeah. So they were definitely adversely affected. They were getting sick. Their environment was polluted. You know, 
But when she talked with them about what they saw as causing it and what they saw as the result, since most of the people there worked in the petrochemical industry, they saw those corporations as kind because those corporations gave them jobs. And they trusted the corporations to clean things up. Even when they worked for the corporations and they were the ones who physically took the pollutants and dumped them into the bayous, bayous, bayous. And they were the people who dumped the pollutants there. So they knew that the the chemical, petrochemical plants were not taking care of the environment, but they still trusted them to, you know, take care of the mess somehow uh, because they saw them as kind because they gave them jobs. Yeah. She went to one church and talked to the people there. And some of the people there, of course, you know, like I said, everybody works for these these plants and refineries. And the people of this church says, yeah, we know it's polluted, but we don't worry about it because God will take care of it. Yeah, God will clean it up. So it's so interesting, you know, how you have this pollution and what caused it. Yeah. And then you have this pollution and what's going to stop it? And, you know, their, their responses for the causes that were going to clean up the pollution were discordant causes. Yeah. As we've seen that the refineries, these big corporations, they're not cleaning it up unless somebody makes them. But they're not cleaning it up. God, I don't know. I haven't seen evidence of him cleaning things up either. Um, and yet the people attribute that kind of causality and expect that kind of causality to work. So it's interesting, isn't it? We know who the polluters are. But somehow having this magical thinking that they are the kind ones, even though they pollute, and then attributing the cleanup to causes that don't have the ability to, to, to do that. Yeah. Okay, so things do not arise from a discordant cause because a specific effect can only arise from the causes and conditions that have the ability to produce it. Yeah. So this happens also in some students' minds. They want to go to a, a certain university or college or trade school or whatever, and they can read what the requirements are for, to, to get admitted, and they don't have the requirements, but they apply anyway and think that somehow they will get admitted. Yeah.
Or you have some kind of office and you think that you can do all sorts of illegal things and that office will protect you. You know, how we how we put together cause and effect in our mind, in our daily lives. We are not such rational beings very often. Yeah. If causality uh, were arbitrary, then anything could produce anything. And by studying Italian, we could learn to speak Chinese. Okay. The fact that something arises only at some times, occasionally, means that it arises only when all of its causes and conditions have come together. Okay, so that was the line in the quotation that, uh, yeah, so it does not rely arise without a cause, we talked about, or from a discordant cause because it arises occasionally. So if something arises occasionally, it has to depend on other conditions that make it arise. And these conditions and the cause have to have that capacity to do it. Okay, it does not arise from uh, the creator God, Ishvara, and so forth, because it arises gradually, you know, and if there were a a divine pre-existing intelligence, as the story goes, creation is like that, isn't it? No, didn't it? Yeah, but he created different things on seven days. Yeah. Okay. But each thing he created on one of the days came into being like that. I mean, did, did God, when he created Adam, okay. Yeah. Did, you know, he create, uh, put one bone on, create one bone on, uh, on Monday and uh, some muscles on Tuesday and yeah, it wasn't like that, didn't Adam just hmm? he he was he was made of clay <laughs> and then what happened? He breathed into it. God breathes? <laughs> Why does God need to breathe? I, when I was in eighth grade, my, uh, we had different teachers from different topics. And one day they called me and they wanted to talk to me. And they said, you have very good questions but please don't raise your hand so often because sometimes we're coming to discuss the answers. We'll get to those things. <laughs> yeah, because I was just a little question box there, you know. Yeah, like you could say, why does God breathe? Yeah, have you ever heard anybody ask that? So, <laughs> okay. <laughs>
Okay, so the world is not created from a creator such as Ishvara, because if it were, it would arise all at once, whereas the world and sentient beings in it evolved gradually. The source of the world and the sentient beings who inhabit it is uh, karma. That's the source. Volitional actions originating in the minds of sentient beings. Okay, so eventually it's tracing back to our minds. Although Vasubandhu stated in the treasury of knowledge, the manifold world arises from karma, he and other Abhidharma authors did not detail the exact process through which this occurs. Why why'd you do that? Vasubandhu, yeah. <laughs> you know? We need this explanation. The broad concept is that through the interdependence of material substances and sentient beings' karma, the world evolved in such a way that it could support the various life forms that live in it. I'm trying to decide where to pause. Okay, I'll do one couple more paragraphs. In a Sutrayana context, Chandakirti noticed in his supplement that we will be studying starting tomorrow, from, this is a quotation, from the mind the world of sentience arises. So too from the mind the diverse habitats of beings arise. The Chittamatra school understands this literally and developed a philosophical system that denies the existence of external objects and instead asserts that both the perceiving consciousness and perceived object arise from the same latency on the foundational consciousness. The Majimaka school disagrees. Although it refutes an objectively existent world out there that is unrelated to sentient beings' minds, it asserts external objects, saying that sentient beings' intentions create karma, which influences their resulting body-mind conflict complex and their external habitat. So within saying that things arise due to the mind or arise due to karma, um, there's different explanations among the Buddhists for how this happens. Okay. So I'm going to pause here because the next paragraph talks about Vajrayana and how it does this. And then His Holiness goes into uh, quite a long explanation that uh, it's better to do it in one sitting. Okay, so any questions? Venerable, that sentence that you just read, the source of the world and the sentient beings who inhabit it are karma. Can you say more about that? Okay. So you want me to read it? Okay, from the mind, the world of sentience arises. So too, from the mind, the diverse habitats of beings arise. Okay, 
Was there another quote? It's, it's the sentence just above the last paragraph on the page. Um, just above where Vasubandhu stated. Okay, Vasubandhu said the, the manifold just above wor it. world arises from karma. Now, above that, the source of the world and the sentient beings yeah. who inhabit it, inhabit it is karma. Volosh, volosh, vo, volitional actions originating in the minds of sentient beings. So what he's explaining here is what uh, he's unpacking what that means. So he just explained Vasubandhu, he explained uh, Chandrakirti, he explained the Chittamadra school, the Madhyamaka school, and he's going to explain the uh, Vajrayana's, you know, interpretation of that. So what it means, it's, it, it, um, it's, I mean, he said that before, that things are an interplay between the, you know, we have these five causal systems and things arise as an interplay amongst them. Yeah. And one of the causal systems is karma. Another one is that natural law. Another one is psychology. So, you know, you have material, you have causal systems of that govern material and causal systems that govern things that are not material. And these all interact. And if we could answer that question in a nice, neat way, we would probably be Buddhas. Yeah. So find a Buddha and ask. Okay. Because I can't answer it. Yeah. I thought about this for a zillion years, but but what just now it reminds me to to also think of the amazing phenomena that they're now studying now that even just people who meditate on compassion for six weeks have detectable changes in their brains. So the level of the mind's capacity to influence form mm -hmm. is more subtle, but also kind of more pronounced than we've ever been able to measure before. So who knows, right? But but that kind of proof is intriguing. Yeah, yeah. But when we, we're going to get into this whole thing about the winds and the body and the subtle elements and that... That makes sense, but you know, it's it makes sense if you believe the whole foundation um, description, yeah. But the foundation description, you know, you need very strong meditative experience to be able to ascertain that for yourself. Uh huh. Um, so on page 144 on uh, the fourth paragraph at the bottom, it says, there's simply the beginningless interplay of various factors that make the world systems arise, abide, and disintegrate and remain dormant. Um, can you, are you able to expand on what remain dormant means? Oh, okay. We're going to get into that. But what it, 
the as the Buddhist theories go, um, world systems have these four things: they arise, they you know they come into being. So that takes I forget they they have a system of big eons and small eons and stuff, and I forget the math around it. But anyway, so many small eons to to arise, so many small eons to abide, so many small eons or big eons, or whatever it is, to disintegrate. And when it disintegrates, yeah, it, it uh, as, as explained in Tantra anyway, it, it all absorbs into what's called the space particles. Okay? So what that means is the potential for all the, the other uh, material things to arise. Okay, so there's some kind of, um, yeah, dissolution process into something that's quite subtle that has the um, possibility, the, the potency to, when the right conditions come about, then again expand into another universe. Um, I also have another question. Um, um, you were saying that Bhikkhu Bodhi said one realization is the cause to lead to the next realization? Yeah. Um, he was saying that that may be an example of the natural phenomenal um, right. relationships. Um, so I'm wondering, um, on the Buddhist path, um, is it a prerequisite um, to realize the other uh, realizations of the path, is it a prerequisite to realize subtle impermanence, or can you realize other realizations before subtle impermanence? There's so many realizations, you know, that uh, which one comes first? Have you ever heard? You know, when you bring in renunciation, and there's so many things well, to understand. Well, not all the different realizations, but just with regard to the like the different kinds of selflessness. Um, yeah, there. Before you can realize the subtlest form of selflessness, like the emptiness of inherent existence or yeah. true existence, you have to first realize, um, you know, more gross level and subtle yeah. impermanence. Pr Precedes that. that. So yeah. you do have to realize subtle impermanence first, and then you can realize the others. Right. Yeah. So, so, so when you start, if you if you are looking just at the realization, you know, of inherent existence and trace that back, then you can see an order of, of realizations that come before that. So then it maybe it's not possible to have a stable realization of love or precious human life before. See, see, that's where, by, uh, yeah, I think those, those you can't figure into, like, you know, what, do you realize impermanence first and then realize love? And no, that you, there's, you can't have a consecutive order with, because it depends on what you're going to, what you emphasize in your practice. Thank you. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the situation of a dormant universe. 
it's it's like I don't know. There's many dormant things in society. In winter, you know, in winter, plants many plants are dormant; they don't grow. So there's the potential for growth. When spring comes, it grows again. So the dormant universe, like I said, everything's absorbed into this uh, potential called a space particle. I'm talking from the tantric view, the t- space particle. But they would, um, yeah, in the sutra, they may say that it's an empty eon. Yeah, but an empty eon's got to have something in it. Yeah, so I think that's why most people... I I didn't become a Buddhist to learn their version of astrology, astronomy and cosmology and things, so this is really not my expertise. <laughs> yes? My conceptual mind. Um... It would, I've always thought of dreams as a conceptual mind, but they say it's not. Yeah, there might be different positions on this because to say it's not, then, yeah, it's hard to explain. So, um, put this in the list to ask Buddhas, okay? Yeah. Direct perception, but then of what? What's the external object? It's a dream elephant. You're cognizing a dream elephant. Well, what is a dream elephant made out of? What's the substantial cause of a dream elephant? That's where Cheetah Madra comes in good. Uh Uh-huh. The universe also a conceptual mind. No, we can perceive the universe uh, directly, different things in the universe with our five senses directly. And we can also think about the universe with a conceptual mind. And when you develop uh, supernormal powers, then you can see things very far away or hear sounds very far away directly. This is going to be the last question. Karma, cause and effect, necessitate that time be linear in nature. I've always, I've always, in whatever Buddhism I've heard, time has been linear. Yeah. Yeah. And you have very specific definitions for a past object, a present object, a future object. And I've never heard of them getting mixed up. Yeah, because because actually, when you think about it, you know, if if okay, you get to this part in time, and you went back to that time, actually, then the past would be the future because you would be going back to it after this period of time. We're going to stop now, folks. 